I'm Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. Hey, welcome back to Warming Signs. Most of us wouldn't even notice it, but for some species, two degrees is the difference between life and death. The evidence is all around Australia. This summer was brutal. Intense heat waves took their toll on wildlife, and a warming world will only make them worse. I recently talked to Dr. Bill Lawrence, a biologist and professor at Australia's James Cook University, about the species suffering the most during this scorching summer and the fate of biological diversity down under. Bill, thank you so much for taking some time to explain what is going on in Australia and just ecologically with these extreme heat events with us. First of all, we all know it gets hot in Australia, but can you give us a sense of just what the heat has been like this summer for you? Oh, it's been brutal. It, it hasn't. I mean, it's been this summer, of course, and it's been. But the thing is, it's just been happening year after year after year here with records being broken just again and again and again, but it's like frying an egg on the sidewalk hot. I'm literally, um, it's, it's incredibly hot. So we've had temperatures, um, you know, 105, 110, 115, I think in some cases, um, you know, we've had just, uh, Fahrenheit, we've had incredible hot conditions depending where you are. Um, some places, you know, that like for instance in our our wet tropical zone where it's um, really humid as well. You add we've been getting you know, really scorchingly hot temperatures up here where I'm at, and, and we're we're used to having high, you know, really high temperatures. But usually the clouds come in and help to give us some some relief. But we've had you know uh, here at where I live in Cairns, uh, just off the Great Barrier Reef, uh, the local airport recorded. Uh, Got to convert it to, into Fahrenheit here, but I think it was about a about 110, uh, which we just don't we never had. It's a complete record breaker. So, um, just for a little clarification, you live in Australia, but you don't have an Australian accent. So, for our listeners, where mm-hmm. are you from originally? Yeah, well, I'm from Oregon. Uh, so, family comes from Oregon, and my grandmother's family came out on a wagon train to Oregon and grandfather's uh, family came out um, on the early trains at the beginning of the, uh, uh, in the early 1900s, grandmother's out in the 1800s. So long, long uh, family history in Oregon. But uh, when I was doing my research for my PhD, I came out to Australia, met an Aussie, got married. And uh, although I drug her over to live in Latin America for 14 years, she eventually drug me back here. And uh, so now we live in Cairns with our kids and and uh, and really enjoy life here. But I'm half American and I'm half Australian. I just wanted to have a basis of reference here that you're not some American bloke coming in and trying to talk about, you know, Australian weather without any context. You have, in fact, lived there for a oh. long time and you study uh, ecology, correct? Yes. Yes, I live here. I'm a university professor here. The team of... Uh, direct a couple of research centers. I have 160 people that work under me or for me. Uh, and yes, so lots and lots of, of experience in Australia and Australian ecology. 
and also, he knows what he's actually, talking about, people. <laughs> he knows what yeah. he's talking about. And also, we also work a lot in developing countries around the world, especially in the tropics. But anyway, yes, I, I, and I can talk Aussie if you want. If we can switch from American to Aussie, we can say things like dinky, dinky die and good on you, mate. And, and <laughs> you know, fair income, well, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> see that that that's you know satisfying. Whenever folks click on something and it says Australia, they want to hear some Australian <laughs> terms. Yeah. Um, at least here in the U.S., I know it's a little bit different yeah. for you. Be careful! Um, what, be careful what you wish for, Kate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have kind of I've taken us off on this tangent, but I definitely wanted to have some context there because this next question is so important for the context um, of of your experience there. What have you witnessed in Australia with all of these heat waves you were talking about? How has that affected the animal populations? Well, the most dramatic thing that everybody has seen, and it's just been so striking that you can't ignore it, uh, has been, I mean, if you think about these heat waves, um, we know that, for instance, when there's been heat waves in the past, um, oftentimes we'll find dead animals. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll just see them on the road. So we like in 2005, there was a really bad heat wave and people were finding possums and tree kangaroos and parrots and other things just dead. Uh, and where you tended to see them was on the road. And it was like, wow, these things are just dying. Um, so, they, you know, it's kind of obvious that there was a lot of stress going on. But where we've it's really been seen, if you think about it, where would you actually see it? happening, like right before your eyes. And the thing is, here in Australia, one of the most conspicuous animals that we have that are active during the daytime are the flying foxes or the fruit bats. And these are these massive bats that, that can have, you know, wingspans up to a yard uh, in width. And um, they eat fruit. So they're not like the little north, you know, bats that people would know, say, from uh, the U.S. or the, the Americas, the, the little bats that fly around and use their sonar to you know to echolocate these are big bats that have great big eyes they look like foxes like their face looks like a fox and they eat fruit and so although they do very much live at night um they're big loud things they flap 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 when they fly and they live they traditionally lived in these incredibly big colonies as it gets hotter and hotter they start um, fighting for the shade and they all start trying to crowd into the most shady areas and you can hear them, they, they squabble and they squawk at each other and stuff. Then they increasingly start flapping their wings to try to cool themselves. And then as it gets really, really hot, they also start licking their wrists. And so they lick their wrists to get that evaporation, evaporative cooling. And But they're also, of course, that's dehydrating them at the same time. So when they get to that point, they're really, really stressing out. And then what you see is when it goes from, they can kind of survive up to about 108. But when it hits 110, they just start dying. And it doesn't just, it's not like just one or two dying. It's like thousands of them die. So in the latest heat wave that we had here, um, and this just happened in a day, they estimate that a third of all the flying foxes died. So you can imagine these colonies, imagine a colony, well, just the colony, for instance, in front of you in Cairns, where you've got, say, let's just say, for example, 2,000 flying foxes, perhaps in that colony, you know, a third of them just falling out of the trees, dead or dying on the ground. And these could be mothers. The mothers might be collapsed, but the baby would be hanging on to them, screaming and crying. People say like, well, you know, it's only like, uh, you know, one or two or three degrees warmer than it was 
a century ago. But that's really that little tiny difference it can be huge because species have thresholds, uh, very strong thresholds of survival, and they can survive up to a certain point. And then when they hit that threshold, they just lose it. Okay, so we could have gone on about flying foxes for days, but it's not just them or even bats in general that are so susceptible to small temperature increases. Heat waves almost wiped out one of Australia's most loved animals. We have a white, a beautiful white possum, a marsupial that lives here, and it lives right up in the high rainforest areas in this part of the world. And it's a specialist for living in the very cool, cloudy rainforests. It's called the white lemuroid possum or, or lemur-like possum. And the white lemuroid possum um, only lives above, sorry, 1,100 meters. So I've got to convert that into feet, which would be above, uh, what's that, 3,500 feet, something like that, in elevation. So it's living up on, on this sort of mountainous areas kind of in the tops of the mountains where it's wet and cloudy and humid and rainy. Um, and they, so in 2005, as I mentioned, we had a big heat wave. Um, and uh, they, this white possum was so famous. I mean, everybody wanted to see them. When, they, when you come to Australia, when you come to the wet tropical area here, you know, you want to go out to the Great Barrier Reef, but you, there's two animals that everybody's got the top of their list. There's the cassowary, which is our, our giant bird that's, you know, five, six feet tall, and there's this white possum. And so it was so conspicuous, spotlighters, the scientists would go out and look at them, but also lots of tourist groups would go out to, to see them in this, in this really tall uh, mountainous area where they occurred. And then, boom, uh, when this really heavy heat wave occurred, um, it took four years before people really realized. It just was like people weren't seeing them anymore. And then finally, uh, I was actually talking to a colleague of mine who'd studied them. And he said, you know, we just haven't seen them for four years. And I practically grabbed him. Uh, at that time, I was living outside Australia, and I'd just come back for a visit. And I practically grabbed him by the lapels of his shirt and started shaking him. And I said, you know, do you understand the significance of that? And by the way, they then went went back up and they really, really looked gigantic effort to try to find it. And after this enormous effort, they've now found, uh, well, they found four of the possums still alive. So for a while, it looks like it's starting to build back up slowly, but for a while that was the, glo the known global population of this uh, highly heat sensitive animal, this unique, incredibly valuable creature. Um, and clearly it was sort of, you know, sitting here right on the edge of the abyss, staring down into the black void of extinction. I mean, it was right on the edge and it was probably just one more heat wave away from vanishing altogether. Okay, so by now you're really fired up like Dr. Lawrence about possums. But you might be thinking, aren't Arctic animals the real victims of climate change? What about all those starving polar bears? Don't get me wrong, those animals are in bad shape. But Dr. Lawrence is about to fill us in on the trouble in the tropics. What you tend to see in the tropics is that you tend to get species that are specialized for living in the lowlands, species that tend to be specialized for living at kind of mid-elevations, and species that are specialized for living up at high elevations, like at the tops of these mountains. And oftentimes they live, again, in these cool, cloudy, very wet areas. 
Um, so that's really, and remember, of course, the tropics are the biologically richest real estate on the planet. And then what you tend to find with these high elevation species is really they're living on islands um, because they're this in this sky island that's essentially isolated from other islands by these impassable lowland areas that are much, much hotter. And what did Charles Darwin find when he went out to all these different islands in the Galapagos? He found that each island had a different species. In this case, what he was looking for, instance, at finches. Also, he looked at turtles and other things and lots of other things as well. But every island had its own distinctive and unique set species there. And that's what we tend to find in these sky islands up on the tops of mountains in the tropics is that you tend to get unique, or as we call them, locally endemic, locally endemic species that live just in one special place. And so when you look around the world and you draw a map of the world, of say the world's terrestrial areas, what you see is that, and you use, let's say, warm colors like reds and yellows to indicate areas with lots of, of locally endemic species and cool colors like blues and greens to indicate areas with not very many of these locally endemic species. What you see is that the world's tropical mountains look like they're on fire. And that's because there's their incredible concentrations, these incredible hot spots of highly specialized locally endemic species. And guess what? Those are probably some of the species that we need to worry about the most because once those heat waves hit, they're, you know, species if you live in the lowlands or mid elevations um, and a big heat wave hit, hits, you have the, at least have the option of, of going up, climbing uphill, going up to higher elevations. And we know that on average, for every, uh, sorry, I have to keep converting here, but you know, for every thousand meters in elevation, you go up, uh, the temperature drops by about six degrees centigrade. So let's put that. So for every roughly 3000 feet in elevation that you go up, uh, the temperature drops by about um, 10 or 12 degrees Fahrenheit. So it gets a lot cooler, obviously, as you go up into the mountains. Well, if you're living at the base of a mountain and it gets really hot, you can at least go uphill and find cooler conditions. But these things that live up on the tops of mountains, when it gets super hot, and when it also when it gets super hot, another thing that happens is that the clouds vanish. So not only are they getting, is the overall temperature uh, getting hotter, but also the clouds that tend to sort of blanket the tops of these mountains and help to keep them cloudy and wet, those disappear as well. And so they're suddenly just getting this huge whammy of, you know, hot conditions with really intense direct solar radiation, completely drying out everything. Um, and these things, they don't have anywhere to go except for heaven. And that's where we actually think we'll probably see the greatest extinctions on the planet Earth in terms of the number of species is, is believe it or not, it's not in the polar areas. It's in the world's tropical mountains. It's not that little slow increase in the thermometer that we got to worry about. It's that the heat wave instead of being 108 is now hitting 110 and the difference and that between threshold those two is enough. things oh it's i mean it's yes absolutely wow. it's the difference between life and death and death when i say death i mean mass death mass die-offs um you know literally tens of you know in the cases of the flying foxes tens or hundreds of thousands of the animals dropping out of the trees dead over a period of an hour or two
So it's just, um, I mean, it's, it seems almost unfathomable. Like whenever you, that seems like something you see in a Hollywood movie about doomsday and this is happening currently now and mm. not just to bats. It sounds like, what does this nope. mean for our global ecology? I mean, what does it mean when these populations are dying off for humans? Is there an impact for us? What does it mean for people? Oh my God. Well, what does it mean? I mean, it means that. Well, firstly, the biodiversity in nature. I mean, we we don't. I don't need to tell you that we rely on nature in so many different ways, from pollinate, you know, insects that pollinate our crops, to um, ecosystems that function, to wildlife species that we that are harvested for um, supporting indigenous populations in different parts of the world. To, I mean, it applies to fish. It applies to birds, mammals. I mean. It's very difficult to imagine what elements of our life wouldn't be affected. Now boarding. This is the perfect place to pause for one of our recurring segments, Go Before It's Gone, where I highlight one of the many destinations under threat from climate change or other human interference. Now this week, we're not traveling far. Australia plans to dump more than a million tons of industrial sludge in the Great Barrier Reef. Australian environmentalists are calling it another nail in the coffin. Now, there are laws that protect the reef, but the Port Authority found a loophole that allows the dumping, and they say the impact will be minimal. But area environmentalists aren't convinced. One expert with the National Oceanography Center Southampton told the BBC if the sludge is dumped in shallow water, it'll smother marine life. The Great Barrier Reef is one of UNESCO's World Heritage Sites and a huge contributor to Australia's tourism sector. The world's most extensive coral reef system is already under stress from climate change. It undergoes bouts of coral bleaching due to warmer sea temperatures. So if you want to experience this natural wonder, the clock is ticking. And on that happy note, let's get back to Bill because we need a dose of hope right about now. Is there any hope? And is there anything that we can do in such a dire situation? Yes, absolutely. There's always hope. And, and if there wasn't hope, then we might as well just, you know, go have a beer and, and, and whatever, give up. We know one of the big things we can do for nature is perhaps the most critical thing we can do for nature is to focus actually on the ground. By that, what I mean is we need to have big parks we need to have large protected areas and especially protected areas that span gradients of elevation and gradients in rainfall and climate. So what we want to have is big, large, interconnected protected areas so that species can migrate and move. And during those intense heat waves or you know intense storm events or whatever, they can move and they can find cool refuges or other kinds of places where they can survive. We know that these big connected, you know, large protected areas are much more resilient to these devastating climate events. So that's one really practical, important thing that we can do. Don't fragment the world, the world's natural habitats. Try to maintain them as intact and as large as possible. It's very practical. And it's in the, the worst thing we can do is sit around here and just wring our hands and not do anything at all. We, of course, want to thank Dr. Bill Lawrence for taking the time to really dive into some of these topics going on in Australia and around the world in some ecosystems that maybe we're not really thinking about. So uh, share this, 
subscribe to this podcast so that every Tuesday you'll get it right into your little podcast app, whatever you may use, and you can listen to it on your drive into work or if you're cleaning. I know I've mentioned this before on the podcast. That's when I like to listen to them. A giant thank you goes to Mia Bichak, Jim Robinson, Dan Wright, Eric Zirkel, the whole team here at weather.com for making this podcast happen every week from my brain to yours until next Tuesday. 